Uh, so I do not at all consider myself a handyman. Uh, I have tools. Uh, I know how to use tools. Uh, but if my wife gives me a job to do, it's going to take me about four to five times longer than if I just called a professional to come on in and fix it for me. Uh, but any, every now and then, uh, typically it's the week between Christmas and New Year's, that's like the week that pastors get off, uh, I get on YouTube and I learn how to do something around the house that I didn't think that I would ever know how to do. And then I'll actually go out and do the job, I pull the job off, and then I walk around my house with a little added swagger to my step. You know, I kind of look at my wife and I'm like, hey, I bet you didn't know, Kristen, when you married me, you didn't just marry a preacher. Uh, you married a sports expert, a horrible golfer, but on top of all those things, like I'm an electrician, I'm a plumber, uh, I could probably just be a contractor and build a house from scratch if I put my mind to it. And she just rolls her eyes at me every time. Uh, so in our house, we have these things called GFCI outlets, I found out a couple weeks ago. Um, we don't go like full-on Chevy Chase during Christmas, but I've got little kids, so we have blow-ups, okay? Those take power to get the blow-ups blown up, and this year I went outside right before Christmas, noticed that my 10-foot snowman uh, had melted. He was just laying on the ground. It was because the night before, a uh, big rainstorm came, got in the extension cord, uh, blew up my GFCI outlet that it was plugged into. Uh, so what did I do? Got on YouTube, went to Ace Hardware, uh, where I spend way too much money for things I do not know how to do. I, or I get two new outlets, I go home, I manage not to electrocute myself, I manage to not burn my house on fire or anything like that. I opened it, turned the power off like you should, uh, undid the wires from the old outlet, uh, put the wires in the same exact spot in the new outlet, turned the breaker back on, still no power to my snowman. My man card status is now a little up in the air. I'm like, I'm going to have to go back. I didn't watch this video. My tail's between my legs. Luckily, I pastor a church, so I know a lot of people. I call my friend Garrett. He's a lineman for APS. I'm thinking anybody knows anything about electricity, Garrett does. Uh, so he calls me. He's like, bro, we just need to FaceTime. So we switched it to FaceTime, and I quickly discover whatever genius electrician wired my house, Beezer Homes, if you work for there, sorry, um, whatever genius electrician wired my house, wired that outlet incorrectly. Uh, so Garrett explains to me that all the wires, the three wires in the outlet, have a role to play. You have the black wire, which is hot, you have the green wire, which is ground, and then you have the white wire, which is neutral. Uh, I had them plugged in wrong. That's why there was no power. Turns out the wiring matters to get power. Uh, three cords, hot, ground, neutral. You get those three in order, boom, you have power. Uh, this morning, we're going to see that when it comes to Jesus Christ, uh, there is no hot ground or neutral. Actually, the big idea of our sermon this morning is that there's no neutrality at all within the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus is going to tell us right in the middle of this long passage that I just read, he's going to say, hey, either you're with me or you're against me. There's really no middle ground. There's no white wire. There's no neutral. And uh, we'll see how this kind of affects our lives in two different places. Uh, in verses 22 through 29, we're going to see how no neutrality in the kingdom of God uh, proves our understanding of Jesus. We prove our understanding of Jesus Christ by what we attribute to him. 
what we give him credit for. And then in verses 31 through 37, we're going to see how we have the opportunity as Christians to prove our loyalty to Jesus by the words that come out of our mouths. Uh, So two big things, kind of our thoughts in our head and the words that come out of our mouth. There's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, go go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, We're just going to get going with a story of Jesus healing. Uh, So Matthew 12, starting in verse 22, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. So here's the event. One verse in the however many we're covering this morning, uh, it takes one verse to kind of tell you the event that's going to spark all the conversation. You have a man that's unable to speak and a man that's unable to see is brought to Jesus, so he's blind and mute. Uh, It doesn't tell us like who brought the man to Jesus. It gives no details on the mode that Jesus healed him. Uh, We don't know if he touched him, if he just spoke to him. We don't know what he did. Uh, Matthew just leaves those details out because they're ultimately not important. All we know is that a man came to Jesus both blind and mute, and he left the encounter with Jesus, and he could speak, and he can see. It was a complete healing. One verse, complete healing. From that healing, you have two different reactions. Uh, First reaction is from the crowd in verse 23. Matthew tells us that all the crowds were astounded and said, could that be the son of David? So crowd number one is astounded, and they attribute the healing that Jesus just did in a positive way. They credit the healing in the way that it should have been credited. They call Jesus the son of David. Uh, If you read Matthew 1, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.1 starts off as this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That was a label for Jesus as the son of David. Uh, So crowd number one here in verse 23, it attributes the healing to Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the proper response. That's the one that the crowd should have had. Uh, Now response number two comes in verse 24, the Pharisees. It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. So taking this healing and attributing the healing to Beelzebul is much, much different than attributing it to the son of David. Uh, David is a historical figure. He's the man that's after God's own heart. He's the beloved king for all the Israel people. He's the greatest king that they had ever seen. Beelzebul was, as verse 24 says, the ruler of the demons. Uh, That name was attributed to uh, old kings in the Old Testament that were against God. But in the New Testament, whenever anybody's attributed to Beelzebul or anything like that, think of it as like attributing something to the devil or Satan himself like the prince of demons. So you have two responses to the healings. One is positive, one is negative. There's no neutral. Why is that? There's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. You can't simply watch someone make a blind man see, make a mute man talk, and then just kind of stand there and simply want nothing to do with it. You make a decision whether you want to or not. So what these two parties are doing is they're either leaning in one way or another when it comes to who Jesus Christ is. Uh, Just as they did back then, they are proving their loyalty to Jesus, or maybe yet they're, they're affirming how much they understand Jesus by attributing the healing to him in a positive or negative way. Uh, we do the same exact thing today. We prove how much we understand about Jesus by what we give him credit for or what we attribute to him. 
So two reactions to the healing. One, a severe misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus by crediting that healing to Satan. The other one, an understanding, a right understanding of Jesus Christ by crediting it to the Son of David, the Messiah. Uh, We'll see that the incorrect understanding of Jesus has extremely negative consequences to it. Jesus explains their error in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, that's a thing that Jesus can do, he told them, well, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Uh, Reminds me of those bumper stickers that you could see as you drive throughout Phoenix. uh, You'll see stickers uh, all over town where one spouse went to ASU, and then the other spouse who was severely misguided in life went down to U of A. Maybe it's the kids in the house. One kid was full of wisdom, the other kid was full of folly. Uh, Either way, the bumper sticker says a house divided, it's got the ASU and the U of A logo and this thing in the middle. So that's a sports rivalry, which at the end of the day is both meaningless and stupid, but Jesus is making the point here. If there's any sort of division, whether it's sports or a kingdom, a house, whatever, if there's any sort of division within those things, it will eventually be eroded and that division will eventually creep up in a way that it will be destroyed. Uh, If you have division in your house that you go home to today, uh, that division, it's either healed or the division will continue to put cracks in the foundation of your home and your home will fall. So Jesus uses that example, and then he uses this to make his point. He says in verse 26, if Satan drives out Satan, then he's divided against himself. How how will the kingdom stand? Basically what Jesus is trying to tell the people is if I am healing that man under the power of a demon or Satan, if I'm driving out a demon as a demon, how does that make any sense? You have Beelzebul, you have Satan, you have demons, they're all kind of on the same evil team, right? If Jesus is under the influence of Satan, then why would he be eradicating demonic possession? If Jesus is Satan, he would want demonic possession to continue. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26. But the irony behind this whole thing was that Jesus wasn't the only one in that day that could cast out demons. Uh, He's the only one who could heal the blind, but he's not the only one who would do exorcism on demonic people. Uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the super-religious had the ability, if you read history, to cast out demons. That's why Jesus throws this question back on them in verse 27. He says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul or Satan, then who do your sons drive them out by? For this reason, let them be your judges. So the sons here are other religious people, uh, the sons of the Pharisees, the Pharisees' disciples, essentially. If they're going to attribute Jesus' healings to Satan, then logic would follow that their uh, exorcisms had to also be attributed to Satan. And Jesus is saying, try to go back to your friends and tell them they're casting out demons by Satan. So that's the negative response. That's the negative attribution, the view that's misguided, misunderstood. Now Jesus sets the record straight in verse 28. He says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if you remember last week, the prophecy from Isaiah, uh, that God speaks through Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ, Uh, he calls Jesus Christ his chosen one, the chosen son of David, I will put my spirit upon him. That same spirit that God placed upon Jesus Christ is who Jesus is correctly attributing his own ability to cast out the demon and heal the man. 
The healing that Jesus did in verse 22 was completely done by the Spirit of God, and that's a completely opposite spirit than the spirit of evil or the spirit of Satan. But not just that, when Jesus healed that man, it was the way for the Trinity to flex the fact that the kingdom of God was now at hand. It was a way for Jesus to show that his healings are a display that his kingdom had now arrived and with the arrival of Christ's kingdom, there was now going to be a power shift on how people looked at things. So he explains this. He uses an example in verse 29. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Uh, parenting tip. If you read scripture with your kids, make your kids act out the scripture that you read. I made my boys act this verse out, and it was hilarious. They were like tying each other to chairs, stuff like that. So I'm five foot nine, 175 pounds on a good day. I'm not an intimidating presence by any means. I've never been approached by like a bar to be a bouncer. I don't even get approached by our security team at church. Here, Jesus is trying to get you to think of like a powerful picture of a powerful, big figure. So you sit there and you have to stare at me. If you got to close your eyes, think of somebody who's big and powerful. Think of this dude, the mountain from Game of Thrones. Imagine trying to walk in this dude's house and trying to rob his house. My guy is six foot nine, 410 pounds. That is like an absolute unit. You're not robbing that man's house if he's in there. As a matter of fact, you walk in the front door, see him, you're walking right back out. Jesus is saying, the only way you're going to walk in the strong man's house is to walk in there, rob him. You got to tie him up first. And for a guy like that, you better have some strong rope. Now, this is an example. Remember the previous verse. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is using this example of the strong man to point out that Satan or Beelzebul or demonic possession is the strong man and Jesus is the one who's coming through the door, he's tying the strong man up and he's stealing his stuff. The strong man may be powerful, but the son of David is stronger than any strong man. The fact here, and we've seen this a couple times in Matthew, that Jesus doesn't need to do any fancy things to exercise a demon. Jesus, in him, is all life and all creation. The fact of the matter is that Jesus has to simply speak and the demon flees. You go back to Genesis 3. The serpent is, more, is craftier than any beast in the garden, but yet the serpent takes direction from the God of the universe. A lot of us like to say, well, the devil never takes a day off. But 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this year, 366 days of the year, Satan, every single day, falls subject to King Jesus. So to reiterate, there's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. The key verse is verse 30. This is the swinging door of this text. Jesus says, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So as you sit there today, you're either with him or you're against him. To be neutral means that you're against him. To use a farming analogy, if you're not gathering with him, you're doing the opposite of gathering, you're scattering. There's no such thing in the kingdom of God to be neutral and to stand still. There's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. 
And the point of these last five verses was for Jesus to show that the people misunderstood who he was, and because they misunderstood who he was, Jesus is telling him that a misunderstanding of me is just you telling me you're not with me, you're against me. They're not neutral, they're actually negative. And what made them against Jesus is they didn't attribute things in the rightful spot in which they should have. So how does this apply to us? None of us were here when Jesus did that 2,000 years ago, but I think if we're not careful, uh, we do the same thing the Pharisees are doing in this text. Uh, If you want to just look at your personal life, think about you just for a second. Uh, Think about everything that happens, like what you're going to do tomorrow, what your week looks like, essentially all the things that happen in your day-to-day life. I'll call those all works of Christ. Uh, Think personally, just yourself. Uh, Look at the circumstances of your life. And then ask ask yourself the question, who do you credit blessings to? The good things in life, the easy things in life, the blessings in life, who do you credit those things to? Uh, Second, who do you credit the mundane things in life to? Uh, Tomorrow morning I'll wake up, I will take my kids to school. That's a relatively mundane act. Who do you credit those things to? Most importantly, who do you credit when bad things happen in your life? I want to start with that one first. Who do you credit in negativity? Who do you credit in spiritual suffering? Uh, In my time as a pastor, uh, I seem to hear a lot, the enemy gets a whole lot of credit for the work that he does to people who claim to be Christians. I use this example a lot. If you get a flat tire this afternoon, it wasn't the devil jumping in the road and putting the nail in the middle of the road. You just simply don't know how to drive and you drove over a nail. One of the most foolish things we could do as Christians, one of the most foolish things that we could do as the people of God is to credit things to Satan that should rightfully be credited to God. When we do those things, what we ultimately are proving is a lack of understanding in one thing and that's the victorious power of Jesus Christ. You understand, don't you, that the enemy that you give credit to is the one that is subject to the king. Read your Bible. This is why at Salt Church we tell you to read your Bible. You see back in Genesis, a lot of you are doing Bible reading plans right now. You see horrible things in Genesis 36 to 50. Bad things happen to Joseph who had every right in the world as he's sold by his brothers into slavery into Egypt, had every right in the world to just kind of fold it, to just say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to have a negative attitude. I'm just going to pack up. But what does Joseph actually do? He doesn't know what the future holds. He makes the best of it. He rises to prominence in Egypt, and then you get to the end of Genesis, and you see the purpose for that. Joseph had to go through negativity so that he could save his entire family, the 12 tribes of Israel that originally sold him. And all the while, all that cloudiness in his life finally becomes clear and he recognizes that it's God that has sent me through the negative so that I can preserve my family's life. He says, what God meant for, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. You read the book of Ruth and you see the unbelievable loss in the life of Naomi. Naomi goes back to Bethlehem. She changes her name. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter because I've been through an unbelievable amount of loss. She lost her husband and she lost her two sons. 
She goes back to Bethlehem where there's intense famine. There's no food to eat. And she tells everybody, just call me bitter. Her circumstances in life were absolutely awful. But you read the book of Ruth and you start to see that through the midst of darkness, through the midst of bad circumstances, that light finally creeps in at the end of the tunnel. And you fast forward to the book of Matthew and you see that through the line of Ruth comes King David and ultimately the son of David, Jesus Christ. You read the book of Ecclesiastes as King Solomon, who had all the money he ever wanted. He had everything he would have wanted in this world. All the money, all the possessions, all the women, all the power. Yet he gathered all those things and then he pointed at it at the end of his life and said, those things are meaningless. That he acknowledges that on this side of heaven, what happens is that some of you are righteous and you get in life what the wicked deserve and some of you are wicked and you happen on this earth to get what the righteous deserve. When that happens, that's not God succumbing to the power of evil. That is a result of our sin and our brokenness. You read over half the New Testament and chapter upon chapter is a story of a woman who could not get pregnant and sat there with a broken womb in barrenness and what seems like a curse to the womb that God allows that woman to get pregnant and through that there's blessings of generations of children. You fast forward to the New Testament. In Matthew 5, you hear Jesus in the Sermon on Mount saying that the Father causes his Son to rise both on the just and unjust, and that the Father sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if you're in this room and you're walking through suffering, don't be so quick to take your suffering and credit to Satan. Spiritual maturity is the ability, church, to see our suffering and endure our suffering, knowing that God isn't hanging you out to dry, but instead is pruning you to hopefully increase your dependency upon him. A correct understanding of the role of Jesus Christ takes the bad things in your life and remembers through the lens of the bad that he will never leave you or forsake you. Through the lens of the bad that he disciplines those in whom he loves. Through the lens of the bad that we can see that he prunes the vines that are connected to him, the branch. So church, if you're suffering in this place this morning, take heart. Jesus is on the throne. The strong man is bound by the blood of Jesus Christ. The enemy does not have a foothold over you. You belong to the kingdom of God. So that's the bad things that happen. What about the good things that happen to you? The blessings you receive. Uh, My boys on the way to school last week, they said, Dad, what is the worst part of your life? And I was like, that's a deep question. It didn't take me long to answer. I was like, Arizona sports, far and away, worst part of my life. In all seriousness, I got to thinking about that question after I dropped them off. Um, I have an awesome family. Uh, God has blessed me with an amazing wife. I have four awesome kids. Uh, The rest of my time goes to this place. Um, a lot of pastors do not like the church that they pastor. I'm the opposite. Like, you guys are awesome. Uh, you give me things. You pray for me. Uh, rarely do I get emails, and that is not an invitation to email me. Um, but you guys are just good people. Um, I get up and I thank the Lord for you. I pray for you. I have a lot in my life that God's blessed me with, and, and a lot of things in my life uh, that I'm extremely thankful for. Church, I'd be an absolute fool to credit any of that to me. I've done nothing to deserve the things that I have. I've done nothing to stand up here today. It's God's grace, it's God's mercy that I get to stand up here and you listen to me preach, some of you that are twice my age. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights. All of us in this room, no matter if you consider yourself blessed or not, do you just stop sometimes and think how lucky we are to live where we live? Like how much worse our lives could be? Like we get to go home and drink clean water today. Even our faith. Like we gather up here, sure we're in a school, but we're not persecuted. I know some of us are walking through a lot of stuff, and, but we don't sit here and get beat up for gathering. All of us in this room are unbelievably blessed by God. But here's what happens. In your life, because you're showered with blessings, you walk in danger if you credit all your blessings and success in this life to the work that you've done. Understand that everything that you've been given in this life is given to you by God. Your ability to work, your ability to make money, your ability to be a spouse, your ability to be a disciple, all those things are given to you by God. And what happens is we prove our understanding of Jesus by what we attribute to him. Subtle thinking that takes the good and credits it to us or subtle thinking that takes the negative and credits it to Satan. What both those levels of thinking do is it takes Jesus, removes him from his rightful spot on the throne as the one who's sovereign over all things and has a better plan for your life than you're ever gonna be able to see. So second thing in this no neutrality case is that we proved our loyalty to Jesus by our words. Verse 31 Jesus says, therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, so you have to read this verse in context. Uh, this verse is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. Uh, what does it say within the context of what we've studied this morning? Uh, the Pharisees, they looked at a healing of Jesus, they looked at a good thing of Jesus, and they called it evil. But not just that, they looked at the Son of God and they called him Satan. But what made it blasphemy is remember Jesus saying, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit that enabled Jesus to drive the demon out. So to call the works of the Holy Spirit evil is blasphemy that Jesus says will not be forgiven. That's the definition of blasphemy. Uh, attributing what is in fact the work of God's Spirit to his ultimate enemy, Satan. It's a complete perversion of spiritual values. Again, it's centered around our speech around the Holy Spirit. Verse 32 he says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the one to come. So that doesn't make any sense. We can speak a, a word against Jesus, but yet not the Holy Spirit. How does that make any sense? Uh, so you read the book of Matthew. We've seen over and over through these sermons uh, that Jesus was clearly misunderstood. He was misunderstood by the crowds, the Pharisees, even his disciples, we're four chapters away from Jesus looking at Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. You are like thwarting my kingdom. But to sit and speak negatively about the power of the Spirit, that was a different thing. That today is a different thing. There's misunderstanding about Jesus, but yet Romans 1 says that the power of the Spirit is clearly seen. All those things are clearly seen, yet the people who choose to ignore the Spirit of God or even make it an enemy of God, what happens is if you're not a Christian in this room, that should just make you simply slow down and pause on what your entire view of God is because that matters. Odds are, if you're a Christian, you're not guilty of the sin of blasphemy, so don't lose sleep over it. 
Whoever you are in this room, what Jesus is trying to say is both spiritually and non-spiritually, the words that come out of your mouth ultimately shape who you are, both from an inward and outward perspective. Verse 33, he tells the Pharisees, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a a tree is known by its fruit. That should remind you of Matthew 7. Uh, That should make all of us in this room just kind of stop and pause and check in our lives. Like the words that come out of our mouth, do those produce any sort of fruit? You want to know if you produce fruit of Jesus Christ? Look at the words that come from your mouth. Every word that leaves your mouth has the ability to either carry life or death in them. The Pharisees had a lot of head knowledge. They knew a lot about the scriptures. But the Pharisees throughout scripture, we see that they're characterized by what? Their words. And their words proved them to be what Jesus said. They were bad trees bearing bad fruit. Ultimately, the worst fruit, the fruit of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus calls them in verse 34. He says, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you're evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good. And an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. Church, your heart is a regulator of your entire body. And Jesus is saying, your body is a storeroom. Your body is a storeroom that you either fill it with evil or you fill it with good. And the thing is, you can have coffee with me, you can have lunch with me, you can lie to me about all the things in your life, which is okay. You can fake it till you make it. But here's the deal. If you consume evil in your life, evil is what's going to come out. If you consume good in your life, good is what's going to come out. The average person speaks 16,000 words per day. I'll have that finished by the time I walk off the stage today. One thing I wrestled with all week is Monday through Saturday, if some invisible guy were to just follow me around like a court reporter and type up everything I said, every word that came from my mouth from the time I get up to the time I go to bed, and then that manuscript is then given to you guys. We have to read that next Sunday, everything Michael said on a Tuesday. If we read that entire manuscript... Could we look at that manuscript and even see the slightest hint that I'm a firm believer in Jesus Christ? We prove our loyalty to Jesus by our positive words, by our negative words, by our neutral words. What would be said of you if you got a manuscript of the words you say tomorrow? Could you look at Philippians 4.8 and apply that to your words? Do the words that come out of your mouth, are they true? Are they honorable? Are they just? Are they pure? Are they lovely? Are they commendable? Are they praiseworthy? In short, do your words represent Christ or do they reject Christ? Do your words point people to him or do they push people away from him? Jesus says one of the most profound things in this verse, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. We may not be guilty of blasphemy like the Pharisees, but we all have the opportunity to either push people either to Christ or away from him by the things that we say. This is a serious thing. That's why Jesus finishes on a serious note He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I don't know about you, but that makes me pray. God, can you make me slow to speak? Can you guide the words that come out of my mouth? It makes me think about the words that I have and the position that I have, how those all, all those things that I say to people, the way I guide people, counsel people, the way you talk to people, our words should be filtered through the lens of eternity. Salt Church, it's clear from these verses there's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. Your real thoughts about who Jesus is, those things will become manifest by how much you give credit to Jesus. 
Your testimony about Jesus Christ will be very clear by the words that come out of your mouth. Those things are things that cannot be faked. A lot of us are just prone to sit on the sideline. But we see through this text this morning, you can't sit on the sideline when it comes to Christ. You're either with him or you're against him. So which kingdom are you a part of this morning? Given those two things of evidence, which kingdom would you look at those two pieces of evidence and say you belong to? Sure, we can claim this, we can memorize this verse and do these things, but when it comes down to your life, do you see Christ as ruler and Lord of every part of your life? Do you recognize Christ as the one who has the enemy bound, or are you the person who wakes up every single day with one eye open waiting for Satan to attack you? Do you curse God as you walk in the midst of suffering? Do your words to other people, do those provide life? Uh, my prayer that I continue to pray for all of us this week is that we could leave here and we could just take inventory. Inventory of us on a day-to-day and in our inventory of what we do in life, see it as Christ is the one who's on the throne. That when we see Christ as the one who's sovereign over all things and on the throne, that that would produce in us some sort of worship. And then that sense of worship would overflow from our hearts and then come out of our mouths. And that day by day, we can live with the recognition of the kingdom that Christ saved us to and the kingdom that we belong to. And that ultimately we can show both by the thoughts that come in our head and the words that come out of our mouth, church, you have every opportunity to leave here today and show that you are with Christ, not against him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it guides us and it directs us. Uh, Lord, I pray for uh, all of us in this room that struggle. Uh, God, a lot of us that have uh, quick wit or uh, just ability to uh, manipulate with the things that we say, Uh, Father, I pray that you convict uh, people of sin that don't think about the words that come from our mouth. God, the the tongue is such a powerful thing as it says in the book of James. Um, God, in it, we have the ability to push people away from you, which is a scary thing. Um, God, give us the ability to speak lovingly, to speak kindly to one another, uh, kindly to our spouse, to our children. Um, Father, I pray for the people in this room who are walking through a lot right now. Uh, God, I pray that you give them eyes to see you as good. Uh, God, that their suffering is ability to cling to you, which is an easy thing for me to pray. Uh, But Lord, that's where the depth of our spiritual maturity is housed. Uh, So God, just work on hearts. Lord, everybody walks in this room every Sunday just carrying different things. And I don't know what all these things are, but God, you know every hair that's on our head. You know the next thought in our minds. We've seen in this text that Jesus knew what the Pharisees were thinking without them even having to say anything. God, because that's who you are. Uh, So God, let us trust in those things. Lord, let us cling to you, Lord. What are you trying to show us, whether it's walking tighter with you or repenting of sin? God, I don't know what the situations are in this room, but Lord, I pray that you just work on every heart that's represented here. God, I love you so much. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the work that you're doing at this place. And God, I just pray that you just can make us a beacon of light, uh, Lord, by the things that we think and the things that we say. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.